best is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Sudan's president has been overthrown and arrested. Fighting in Libya, but who's governing the country? No change at the top in Israel, and remembering Ian MacDonald, the voice of the Falklands conflict. The second battalion of the parachute regiment has taken Darwin and Goose Green. But first, the UN has called for an end to the fighting in Libya, where troops have attacked the capital Tripoli under the orders of a rogue general. Last week, General Khalifa Haftar, who commands forces in the east of the country, declared an offensive to take control of the capital from the internationally recognised government. Well, let's talk to writer and researcher Mary Fitzgerald, who specialises in Libyan affairs. Hello, Mary. Uh, just take us through who runs Libya and is the government actually governing? Well, we can say that no one uh, runs Libya and no govern government has managed to govern in any real sense for quite a number of years now. Um, the events of the last week um, have, have taken many, many people, including many internationals, by surprise. A week ago on this day, the same day, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was visiting uh, Libya to try and give fresh impetus to the faltering UN uh, peace process. Khalifa Haftar announced an offensive to take Tripoli, the capital. That is Khalifa Haftar, a powerful commander in eastern Libya, whose critics accuse him of seeking to impose himself as a military ruler in, in Libya. Since then, um, there has been fighting um, around uh, Tripoli, not in the city centre uh, just yet, but on the outskirts. Dozens of people have been killed, thousands of people displaced, and Haftar has rebuffed entreaties, including by the UN Secretary General, to halt the offensive. He's determined uh, to continue. Just tell me a little bit more about General Haftar. He's 75, isn't he? He's 75 and he has a, a pretty checkered history in, in the eyes of many Libyans. Uh, Gaddafi was, uh, was behind, beside, I should say, um, Gaddafi in 1969. They were both young military officers. They both participated in the military coup that brought Gaddafi to power. Haftar later fell out with Gaddafi. Um, partly because of Libya's disastrous uh, war in Chad, where Haftar played a lead role. Haftar drifted into opposition circles, later came back to Libya in 2011 to join the uprising against Gaddafi, and had been trying to find a role in post-Gaddafi Libya until 2014, when he went on TV, and declared our, an attempt at a military coup, was accused of attempting a military coup by the then Prime Minister. Um, a few months later, surfaced in eastern Libya, announcing an operation that he claimed was it about rooting out extremists um, in Benghazi and eastern Libya more generally. I met Haftar a few weeks into that operation in June 2014, and at that point he was quite coy um, about his um, uh, future ambitions. When I asked him about the many Libyans who supported this idea of an operation to root out extremists, but were very wary about Haftar's ulterior motives and ambitions, he grew quite testy. And the same day, one of his advisors, when I asked him, what is it that Haftar wants? The advisor said, well, to rule uh, Libya, of course, and uh, and we need, we need a strong man. And that is something that many of Haftar's supporters will insist. They insist that what Libya needs, eight years after the fall of Gaddafi, with the country in chaos, 
they insist um, Libya needs a, a strong one. But there are significant proportions of the Libyan population, including very powerful armed groups that are very much opposed to that scenario and are prepared to fight against any possibility of that happening. The Law Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio with me. Uh, Christopher, do you think General Haftar will take over Libya? Uh who can take over Libya at this at this stage? I mean, the, you start off with is he strong enough to take over Tripoli or whatever? I was I was just wondering, Mary, um, the coincidence of the uh, assault uh, or the attempt on Tripoli itself uh, with the with the United Nations uh, visit to uh, Libya. It was almost as if the general was saying, "Listen." Uh, this is, I, I decide what goes on here. You don't need to cu- even come here. I decided. Indeed, and he's been trying to uh, create that impression since the UN process uh, started in late 2014. At every juncture since then, Haftar has tried to undermine that process. He has opposed the um, government of national accord that grew out of that UN process and has been the key obstacle to the UN process moving forward. When the uh, offensive began, the day um, he declared the offensive, because Haftar, you know, he likes to posture. (laughs) And so many people thought this was basically Haftar posturing ahead of a, a peace conference that was due to take place on April 12th. But as the days have passed, it's clear this is not posturing. Haftar is is serious about this offensive. And as I said earlier, has completely rebuffed any entreaties to halt this offensive, um, giving, given the gathering momentum of the conflict around Tripoli. And Mary, is he strong enough to take over Tripoli and to hold it? No, um, the, 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 the challenge here is, and I have to say there has been a lot of wishful thinking in international circles about uh, Haftar, his uh, capability and the realities of the forces he collectively calls the Libyan National Army. Um, others, his opponents would say that what he oversees is a collection of militias. What the um, LNA, the self-styled LNA is, is at heart a core of military officers, people who served in the military under Gaddafi. But its fighting forces are essentially militias. They are tribal militias, they are regionally oriented militias, and a key component of the LNA are hardline Salafists. Saudi-inspired Salafis that Haftar recruited, which of course challenges the narrative Haftar has sought to project, particularly to Western audiences, that he is somehow this military leader who will root out Islamists of of all stripes. Mm. So the the challenge for Haftar is that um, this uh, offensive that he has declared, and it's not going well for him so far, um, that it will further expose the paradoxes when it comes to his actual forces and, and capability, when you take a, when you when you take on the on on the chance of, uh, uh, of of going into a city or advancing on a city, then controlling it, you have to control all the ways into that city, all the communications, etc. And then once you're there, the hardest part is to keep control of it. If you're trying to do that with a militia, mm-hmm. you are effectively trying to do that with mercenaries, and each mercenary uh, can can have an authority of some form. They all need paying off, etc. One thing you cannot do is guarantee your own forces, and that's his main weakness. Mary, what do you think will happen next? 
Well, the, we're at a particularly dangerous juncture, I think, because um, Haftar miscalculated on a number of um, on a number of levels. Um, number one, his strategy was to basically gain a very quick momentum so that armed groups in and around Tripoli would flip to his side. This strategy paid off for him more recently in southern Libya. That has not happened. Instead, what we've seen is a greater counter-mobilization against Haftar than many people um, expected. So it's particularly dangerous because that, that very large counter-mobilization, including some of the most powerful armed factions in western Libya, including those from the, the city of Mistrata, High emotion, the sentiment and rhetoric we're hearing from Misrata reminds me of, of 2011 when Misrata played a key role in the uprising against Gaddafi. So we have that on one side, and then we have Haftar stalling, or possibly Haftar stuck. And Haftar stuck is Haftar dangerous, mm. um, which raises the prospect of a protracted battle in the capital of Libya. It's home to 1.2 million people, and it is home to the pillars of what is the um, very, very uh, shaky Libyan state right now, the National Oil Corporation and the Central Bank. This is why um, diplomats are extremely worried about this, where this could go, and the fact that neither side seems to be willing to uh, stand down at this point. All right, we will watch this with interest. Mary Fitzgerald, thank you for your time today. Still to come, Putin's making plans for the Arctic and the reluctant celebrity, the story behind the MOD's press man during the Falklands War. President Trump has congratulated the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on his election win, saying it'll improve the chances of peace between Israel and and the Palestinians. Mr Netanyahu and his Likud party are expected to be able to draw a number of smaller right-wing and religious factions into a new governing coalition. Well, let's talk to Rosemary Hollis, Professor of International Politics at City University in London. Hello, Rosemary. Um, Why does this election matter so much for the whole of the Middle East? Ah, well, because at the moment in the Middle East, there's a kind of axis of action between Donald Trump and his best friends in the region, which is Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, and the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And they had a grand scheme to take on Iran. Uh, They had another scheme hatched with the help of Trump's son-in-law, Kushner, to stitch up the Palestinians so they ceased to be a bother to the Israelis and to basically plan the region ahead to their satisfaction. Now, there's a couple of things wrong with that scheme. One thing that's gone wrong is that Mohammed bin Salman has overreached himself, and that goes back to last autumn and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And so uh, he's had to temper his actions, and he's obviously in trouble in Yemen, and the campaign there is not going well. Added to which, his father has told him that there are certain issues on which Saudi Arabia is not going to change its position, and that includes the Palestinians. And all the Arab leaders know that even if they're sick to death of the Palestinians and the Palestinian problem and would quite like to do a deal with Israel, they can't be seen to do that in front of their own people. And then you come to the uh, Israeli scene itself, And there, it's interesting that in the 
little right-wing parties that Netanyahu will form a coalition with, there are those who don't even want what Trump has in mind for the Palestinians because it might involve conceding them something. Mm. So when President Trump says it improves the chances of peace between Israel and Palestinians, how do you react to that? Well, actually, one of the right-wing, the smallest right-wing groups and the most extreme has already said since the election to Netanyahu they won't maintain their support of him as prime minister, as leader of a coalition, if he embraces any Trump plan. Now, we don't know what the Trump plan is. Hmm. We've heard from the White House in Washington that it will be announced soon, but we've heard that for about one and a half years now. I've heard rumors in the region, I can't verify them, that Trump himself has phoned up leaders of different Arab countries to see whether they will accommodate some of the Palestinians. They will give them some land so that Israel doesn't have to relinquish any of the land that it occupies that belongs to the Palestinians. Mm. And and Trump is even talking money. Um, and there will be benefits to helping the Americans get rid of the Palestinian problem. But you can see that there are three million of them living under occupation or under blockade in the Gaza Strip, more than three million of them. And then if you add in the Arabs, 20% of the population of Israel itself, uh, these people aren't going anywhere, and that's their main battle cry at the moment. They take pride in their steadfastness. They're not going to surrender. They're not <clears throat> going to disappear. So assuming Netanyahu forms his coalition, that all goes ahead. What happens about these legal difficulties in them? He could be prosecuted on, on corruption charges. What happens about all of that? Well, it looks like he's positioned himself to do a deal with the right wing, the pro-settler parties, to not only continue settlement expansion, but potentially to annex all the settlement blocks and the little outposts to Israel proper. After all, he just got the approval of the Trump administration for the annexation of the Golan Heights captured from Syria in 1967. Why not for some of the West Bank as well? And he seems to have indicated by talking about annexing settlement blocks, that he proposes to give this to the right-wing pro-settler parties in return for them approving a new piece of legislation which would render him immune to indictment so long as he's in office. When you look at this situation at the moment in Israel, how much does it worry you in terms of, of peace in the region? I think... There's a sadness amongst many, many Israelis that what Netanyahu is in effect doing is flouting the rule of law in their own country. And if he annexes territory in the occupied territories, where there is a theory at least of an exchange of land for peace with the Palestinians and thence the other Arabs, and it would be against international law to annex those areas. Uh, there is a sadness that that Israel's gone mad. 
Rosemary Hollis, Professor of International Politics at City University, thank you for your time today. The Sudanese Defence Minister has announced on state television that President Omar al-Bashir has been toppled. He said a transitional period of two years has begun before elections are held under a new constitution. He also spoke of how the country has been mismanaged and apologised for the loss of lives during protests in the country. Patrick Smith is the editor of Africa Confidential and joins us now. Hello, Patrick. The Defence Minister has said a military council will run the country for the time being. Is this a military coup then? Greetings. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, uh, undeniably uh, a military coup. It's a palace coup by some of uh, Omar al-Bashir's closest associates, all of whom have a heinous record of human rights abuses and oppression of their people. So what it is is that the uh, head of the snake has been removed and taken to a safe house but the snake has grown several other heads. So we're not likely to see any major political change as a result of this announcement. But I think what is is happening on the streets at the moment is uh, mass mobilization for a real change. So this is just the first step in, in a process of change. Just remind us what the UK interest is in Sudan. Why should the UK be bothered? Well, the, the UK has unfortunately been part of the... Uh, Omar al-Bashir, um, it has concocted a policy called the Khartoum Migration Agreement, which means that uh, Sudanese dissidents living in Europe and especially UK are sent back to be tortured uh, and detained by the regime. So uh, that uh, has angered many of the, the opposition in Sudan. So there's a long history, unfortunately, of uh, British and uh, wider European complicity with the Sudanese regime, as there is with uh, America, the American government, and indeed Moscow and uh, Beijing. So it's one of those uh, really probably ranks as one of the most oppressive regimes in the world, uh, perhaps second only to uh, al-Assad in Syria. But the difference is that the West and Moscow and Beijing, for various reasons of national self-interest, have sought either to, to keep up or to maintain, uh, maintain diplom- close diplomatic ties with it. Christopher Lee. It was quite interesting to see who um, was a split in the military. Uh, and if you were watching this about a month ago, and that was the intelligence people had an idea of what they could do on how long they could hang on to the president, how long they could keep him in power, uh, and being quite surprised about the sort of the public demonstration against this. Two years we're going to have before there are elections. Well, we've heard that from all sorts of uh, I, I, countries, haven't we, before? I, I don't think this regime is, is going to last another two weeks. I mean, you know, what I'm getting from people on the streets uh, who have led this uh, demonstration, there's over 600,000 people camped outside the military headquarters, is what the defence minister himself, who is an indictee, uh, along with uh, El-Bashir at the International Criminal Court and thank- uh, subject to US sanctions, um, he, I don't think it's going to last that long. I mean, the idea that he can impose a state of emergency for another three three months. He announced a curfew today. That's unacceptable to to the people who have uh, brought the, this event, uh, turn of events about. So I, 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 I 
I think at the moment we're just seeing the first stages in a much longer transition. And the other part of it is that if you talk to people in, in, in foreign office about this, they don't want to talk to about it, but they say you've got to realise that one of the great difficulties, it may be, and quite soon, that we get into a position where somebody, might be United Nations or whatever, has got to become an arbitrator in what goes on. And it may be that the people are leading this for to take over the country are going to need all the, going to need all the help they can get to actually sort of stabilise the country. And that's almost an impossible task. Well, I think, uh, as you say, there are major divisions within the military, and, and that was one of the Omar al-Bashir regime's policies, to create these parallel security organizations, intelligence organizations, armed militias, and so forth. Mm. But what has become evident from what's happened over the last week is that the younger officers in the army, uh, from the ranks of uh, colonel, lieutenant colonel, down to, to the rank and file, have, have suffered as much from this regime and its corruption okay. and oppression as the people at large. So they're also opposed to it. So they find what the, uh, what the right. commanders are, are proposing uh, equally unacceptable. So right. I, think, I think that is what you've seen, see, seeing now is what happened in 85 and 64 in Sudan. It's a mass popular uprising and uh, okay. the army, uh, more, uh, shall we say, progressive elements in the army working with the opposition for political change. I think that's the process uh, underway now. We'll have to leave it there for today, Patrick Smith, but please come back and talk to us about this again and we'll watch it with interest. Uh, Patrick Smith, editor of Africa Confidential. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has given the order to expand his Navy's icebreaker fleet. It's part of the Putin Arctic plan to secure the ice cap for Russia. He sees this as a military and a commercial ambition. Well, let's talk to retired Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Good to speak to you today, Chris. Uh, Russia started in the Arctic long before polar oil and gas was important. Is that the main issue now? You're absolutely right. I mean, the Russians have been in the Arctic for 350 years and they see it very much as part of their backyard. They're near abroad. And of course, as the ice recedes and you're getting sea, uh, a lot of other people are thinking, hey, we'd like some access up there. And it's not just the oil and gas, of course, it's uh, fish that we like to eat. But more importantly, there's a northern sea route uh, that is opening up. Uh, And if you go across the top of Russia, instead of going through the Suez Canal, you save anything up to 10 to 14 days transit time from the Far East to, say, Rotterdam. You also save about $350,000 worth of fuel oil in doing so. So it's, a, it's going to become a real strategic waterway in future. And of course, you're going to be sailing very close to Russia. And, and what Putin's saying is, uh, you know, the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea says we've got territorial seas out to uh, 12 miles where our jurisdiction runs, but actually we'd like to extend it way out uh, so that anything that comes up here is subject to our control. And just give us a picture of the Russian military assets for this long-term project. Well, they've been building for some time. They've been uh, reviving quite a lot of air and military bases in the Arctic from the old Soviet era. There are two combat brigades specifically uh, trained uh, uh, and equipped for Arctic operations. We don't have a single brigade uh, in NATO, for example. He's got... uh, over 20 icebreakers, of which uh, 15 are nuclear-powered. Um, the Americans have got one. Um, and that's the scale uh, of the problem that we face as NATO. Uh, 
we used to send submarines up there under the ice. We're starting to do that again now. Uh, this is Russia's backyard. It's where the Northern Fleet is based, their most powerful uh, uh, base against uh, NATO and the Atlantic in naval terms. And there's a vast uh, infrastructure up there ready to support these military operations. And that includes, by the way, six floating nuclear power stations which they've commissioned over the last five years to service the infrastructure and the bases up there. And so what happens to the claims of the Americans, the Canadians, the Norwegians and the Danes in all of this? Well, you're absolutely right. They are the primary Arctic nations. They have um, territory uh, bordering onto the Arctic. Each of them have their claims. The Danes have been very brave and said, actually, you know, we'll, we'll take the North Pole because we'll extend all the way up Greenland and beyond that. And of course, the Russians are very happy with that. Uh, there's going to be a problem in terms of demarcation. And it's not just the primary Arctic nations that are involved here. If you look at countries like uh, Japan, you look at China and India, they're saying, look, we've got interests in the Arctic. And China calls itself uh, an Arctic nation to the extent that it has an icebreaker up there permanently, uh, ostensibly for uh, research reasons. A second one uh, will join it uh, this year. They're trying to buy up real estate in Spitsbergen. And the approaches to the Arctic are attracting all sorts of commercial and geopolitical interest in that respect. It does seem that tensions are ratcheting up in the Arctic. Just how far do you think it might go? Well, I think uh, people are going to try and resolve their difficulties through the Arctic Council in the short term. Uh, I'm afraid to say that I think the example we've seen out in uh, the South China Sea is going to assert itself, and that is people will uh, test the limits of tolerance. I think they will stake their claims on the ground and actually dare people to push them off. And I think the Russian policy is simply to stake their claim, sit on it with quite a lot of military power, as in uh, Ukraine and Crimea, and say, you know, you're going to push us off or are you just going to accept it? Mm, that, that, that would seem to be the, the policy. And while you're here, Chris Parry, um, the MOD has been celebrating Operation Relentless, five decades of naval nuclear deterrence. What's the new deterrent? Is the one? Yeah, the, we've got the new uh, Dreadnought-class submarines coming on stream at the beginning of the 2030s. Uh, they will incorporate ballistic missile technology. I think it's up for grabs as to whether that will be the technology of choice by them because there are all sorts of other things coming along like hypersonic missiles uh, that can be fired uh, into the lower Earth orbit which then come in uh, at a very flat trajectory as opposed to the vertical one. You know, there's all sorts of developments in anti-ballistic missiles uh, and other such stuff. So uh, I think if you're going to buy a replacement uh, Trident today. It's got to be a ballistic missile system. Uh, and the system we've got now is pretty much up there with the Rolls-Royce rather than down with the sort of uh, Morris Mini types of uh, weapons. So it's worthwhile investing in but that. But this is uh, the I ultimate deterrent. You can't think in the future of anything else that might replace it. Well, it, there are a number of things that could replace it. These hypersonic uh, missiles could do that. It, it depends. It's what will get through the defences of your opposition to convince the guy or the woman in charge uh, that uh, what they're attempting to do isn't worth uh, what we could do to you. And as long as you can do that uh, with whatever deterrent system you have, uh, then that, that is fine. Um, I think the problem we've got uh, into the future uh, is the fact that we're going to have a lot more nuclear nations and some of them, uh, I can think of at least five right now, see nuclear systems as war fighting weapons, not 
not as deterrent weapons, but war fighting. Two recent Russian exercises, Zapad 17 and Vostok 18, they both had a nuclear phase and uh, tactical level nuclear weapons were used in simulation, of course, uh, to bring the other side to the negotiating table. And that is entirely conformal uh, with current uh, Russian military doctrine. But you look at India, you look at Pakistan, North Korea, of course, China, they all say, you know, we could probably use these in wartime as well as deterrent systems. So that's the very complicated pattern of deterrence and uh, nuclear capability we've got to navigate uh, in future. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Rear Admiral Chris Parry, thank you for your time today. We have just learned that the 2nd Battalion of the Parachute Regiment has taken Darwin and Goose Green. That was the so-called voice of the Falklands War, Ian MacDonald, who died this week, aged 81. The Ministry of Defence spokesman gave televised updates on the conflict 37 years ago. Christopher, um, his voice was what people, and his delivery is what people remember so well. What's the story behind that? Well, the rubbish in the MOD refused to do the, uh, the, the spokesman job, frankly. So they pulled him out of pensions or something like that because they weren't quite sure how it would happen. And they made a joke of him. They called him, they called him the I speak or wait machine. This guy, every single day, was talking to 200 people in the press room. He was talking in six languages. And he had to make it so that everybody understood perfectly what they could hear from him. It was the story that the United Kingdom was put out. He was badly treated, but he was a great guy. He was also one of the greatest experts on 14th century wall paintings in <laughs> India. And I reckon that anybody can do that and tolerate the MOD as it was then. That was a pretty regular guy, and he was. And that is all we have time for this week. If you've got an opinion you'd like to share about something you've heard on the programme, you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us again next week. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now.